Welcome to PCA One-on-One, Positive Coaching Alliance's podcast series where we talk with leading experts about how to develop better athletes, better people through sports. And now here's your host, Jim Thompson, PCA founder and CEO. So I'm really excited today to be uh, interviewing Dan Coyle. Uh, Dan was born in in St. Louis, but raised in Alaska. He's been a, a journalist um, now living in Cleveland, I have to ask you, Dan, are you a Cleveland Indians fan? You know, uh, by marriage, does that count? I think it does. I think it does count. Yes, <laughs> I think he's become a Cleveland Indians fan. He's, he's been um, uh, a, a youth baseball coach, uh, wrote the fantastic book Hardball, Season of the Projects, the Cabrini Green in Chicago, which uh, was later turned into a movie with Keanu Reeves. Um and uh, also wrote a uh, a book that I just found out about and I'm going to be reading soon called Waking Samuel. Um, he followed uh, Lance Armstrong for a long period of time before Lance was uncovered as a cheater. Um, so we may talk about that as well. And um, a contributed editor to Outside uh, Magazine has won the Sporting News Book of the Year Award, twice nominated for National Magazine Awards, and has been featured in the Best American Sports Writing. And I'm just really proud to say, oh, I haven't even mentioned his, his most uh, popular books, which are The Talent Code <laughs> and, and The Little Book of Talent. Um, and I'm just really proud to say that Dan is the newest member of Positive Coaching Alliance's National Advisory Board. Dan Coyle, uh, welcome to PCA One-on-One. Wow, it's really fun to be here with you, and it's an honor to be part of uh, your mission. So let me start with um, Hardball. Um, the You wrote, did all the research and wrote Talent Code and the Little Book of Talent quite a few years after you were coaching uh, Little mm-hmm. League. Um, what are some things that you learned in writing those books that you wish you had applied as a baseball coach? Or maybe Everything? Were some things you I were guess doing. Okay. Right, right. There were there were so many things that I looked back on, uh, and it really speaks to how coaches are kind of the role of coaches and how people become coaches in in America, which is different than other countries in some ways. It's it's usually what happened to me in Chicago was I had a friend who said, "Oh, there's a league starting. You should come." And I love baseball, and that was my main qualification. I love baseball, and I didn't, you know, wasn't married, and I had time, and so I went down and I. Uh, started coaching and and there wasn't any test and there wasn't any curriculum and uh somebody handed me a schedule and a bunch of kids came up and they looked at me and i had to tell them stuff you know i had to come up with something to say and i had to come up with some drills and i stumbled through it and and uh along with my friends uh for for several years there and it was only later after i sort of spent some years visiting talent hotbeds and studying the craft of coaching and studying how skill and talent really grow uh, around the world, that I realized um, just how spectacularly amateurish and bad a coach I was. It was incredibly humbling to to sort of look back and and say, um, you know, that I was that I was going through it, uh, really guessing and really hoping and really hoping that my you know some, a good sense of humor and a few ideas would carry the day. And that sounds pretty good, but that's not what good coaching is made of. And, you know, you, when you're looking to build skill and you're looking to connect human beings to, to a team, into a team, that is much more an art and a science than it is a luck. And, uh, and we were lucky enough in Cabrini that we won a few games and a, a championship even. But um, if I were to go back now with everything I know, I think I'd do it a little bit, a little bit differently and hopefully a little bit better. 
you know, you talk about um, in the talent code hard skills and soft skills. Um, and, you know, hard skills are swinging a baseball bat, uh, you know, uh, practical in-the-world things. Um, and you want to hone those to their just automatic, talk about muscle memory, et cetera. Uh, but then mm-hmm. you talk about soft skills, like the ability to um, – you know, as a as a little league manager, to look out and see what is, or you know, I think of, I was a base basketball coach, and you know, what is the what's the other team doing here? What are they trying to do? Those soft skills. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the coach's role with you know the hard skills and the soft skills? Yeah, I mean, a coach really is doing is doing a lot, uh, and anybody who coaches knows what that feels like to sort of be a little bit overwhelmed and not really understand what's what's going on out there. And and one way, one sort of tool you can have is to divide things up into those two buckets that you mentioned: the hard skill and the soft skill. In the hard skill, you want to do the same every time. It's a circuit in your brain, really. You know, we talk about muscle memory, but muscles don't really have memory. All of it is the electricity in our brain, the wires in our brain connecting up in a certain way that let us swing the golf club, swing the tennis racket exactly the same every time. Um, That's what a hard skill is. And they're built sort of like carpentry. They're built by doing things slowly, by paying keen attention to errors, by focusing a lot on the first reps and getting those right. Um, They're built sort of like a careful carpenter would build a house piece by piece by piece, chunk by chunk would be the scientific term. And then in the other bucket, you've got these soft skills, which are basically pattern recognition and reaction. When you think of Leo Messi going down the field in soccer, inventing moves as he goes down the field, when you think of a great coach seeing a pattern and and reacting to it by putting in just the right play at just the right time, that's not magic. It, It looks like magic, but what it is is a soft skill that you grow over time. And those skills are not built sort of piece by piece by piece. They're built in an atmosphere that's a little bit more exploratory, a little bit more like a skateboard park. You know, if hard skills are built in a carpentry shed, a carpentry shop, then soft skills are built in a skateboard park where you're, you're experimenting, you're playing, you're playing around with the sport, with the ball, or with your coaching skills, and you're stretching in ways, and you're falling on your face like you do in a skateboard. In both the hard and the soft the main big realization that science has to teach us, the big, the big headline that I think, you know, people like fellow advisory board member Carol Dweck and, and other folks that you know, um, they really are keen on, on showing us the fact that those mistakes, which feel so bad, whether they're in the hard area or the soft area, those mistakes are really our friends. You know, those are our teachers. Those are the, the, the points in the map that show us where to go. And as a coach, if we can, tune into that giant fact that that mistake that kid just made or that mistake that you just made as a coach is actually showing you it's a a signpost that's going to show you where to go and to take that not as a verdict on anyone's ability or worth but to take that as a piece of information very seriously that will that you can learn from in the book uh the talent code i call this the state deep practice um and it's it's different than sort of regular learning It, it feels different it feels you know it's harder it's it's more effortful um, it can also be called deliberate practice, but it's that space on the edge of your ability where you're making mistakes, feeling those mistakes, and fixing those mistakes. And that's what talent you, is made of. You have this great uh, <clears throat> analogy there. Uh, deep practice is like 
being a staggering baby. <laughs> you know, I've got a five-year-old <laughs> grandson, and I've got a, now a two-month-old uh, granddaughter. So Rafi is past, uh, you know, he's running all over the place, and uh, nice. Lila isn't ready to walk yet. But I remember his, in fact, I happened to be there. They were living in Brooklyn at the time. I happened to be there when he took his first step. Um, and that idea of being a staggering baby, um, and you, you say to get good, um you uh yeah it's helpful to be a willing even enthusiastic about being bad and we have we have uh, i got this from george leonard's book um uh now i'm forgetting the name of it but george leonard mastery um, mastery yes thank you for mastery he talks about being willing to play the fool and mm-hmm. it seems like um when you if you're afraid of looking foolish if you're afraid of looking stupid boy you're just not going to be a very good learner you're done. You know, when, when, when Wayne Gretzky's teammates watched him practice, uh, they would occasionally see him slip and fall. He'd be out skating by himself on the ice, by himself, practicing these turns and moves, and he'd slip and fall. Now, that is the greatest hockey player who's ever laced up skates. And he's at the professional level, and he's, he's in front of his teammates, willing to take the emotional burn, the shame of slipping and falling, because that's a guy who understands that the only place he's going to get better is on the edge of his ability and the willingness to go to that place. You know, the, the psychologists call it the sweet spot, which is funny. It doesn't feel sweet to fall. It doesn't feel sweet to stagger. But that sweetness is because you learn so much if you genuinely engage in that moment and if you really feel what happened and you fix what happened. You know, a couple of thoughts there. You have a great term. You say it actually should be called the bittersweet spot. <clears throat> and, you know, we we uh, we have a lot of uh, sports psychology folks, including Charlie Marr, who's with the Indians in Cleveland. Um, and the, the crucialness of uh, self-talk <clears throat> and that when you're 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 doing something and you're looking stupid, that negative self-talk kicks in and you've got to be able to have a story to tell yourself about why, you know, yeah, I'm looking foolish, I'm looking stupid here, but this is going to help me learn. That's right. That's right. To actually have that have that growth mindset where you understand, you know, and we have that in other places of our lives. When we go to the gym and our, we try to lift a weight that's really heavy and our muscles burn and we feel that burn, we translate that burn as a positive because we've heard, feel the burn, you know, no pain, no gain. We understand that with our muscles. But where it really becomes interesting is when you apply it to your skills, uh, to your mind. You know, when you understand that that moment of feeling like an idiot is actually this tremendous good burn that you're feeling that's, that's painful, but also incredibly productive. And if you don't go there, you're not going to build the kind of circuitry that skill is made of. You're not going to get faster, better, more strong, accurate. It's, uh, it's, it's impossible to go there, you know. So it's, it's all about kind of reinterpreting that story and reinterpreting that self-talk um, it's not about taking mistakes lightly. You still take them seriously. You just don't take them personally. You don't take them as a verdict. And as a coach, if you can reinterpret and tell that story, you know, that's the great challenge of, of coaching, I think, in some ways, is because we're constantly asking kids to go to that place where there's a lot of – where it's hard, where it's really hard to go there and make mistakes in front of people. And to create an environment where it is not just – okay to do that, but where it's awesome to do that. There was a, there's a, a Chinese a guy I met who was coaching the Chinese diving team, and the Chinese diving team has won, I think the last Olympics they won, you know, 70% of the medals. And there was a, a moment that he videotaped for me that 
uh, I put on my blog a while back, and it was of a guy trying a dive that had never been done before. It was like a four somersault off the high dive, and the guy completely screwed it up. He actually landed in the water almost as a back belly flop, um, and the people in the arena gave him a standing ovation, all of his teammates and the coaches. And he, he, he absolutely screwed up the dive, but they had created this culture of, of supporting that moment, of saying, you know, that's exactly what we want is somebody who's gutsy enough to go out and try that and fail and then try it again because we know that's where we're going to get better. Wow, what a story. We, we talk about, um, you know, um, people being pack animals. We, we tend to think of ourselves as John Wayne or, you know, we, we do what we think is right, what we want to do, but uh, we tend to we tend to go along with the organization we're in if we want to be part of that. And uh, part of, uh, you know, what you need to do as a coach, for example, is to create a culture, um, you know, so you think about you, we need to create a different pack for ourselves. And it seems like that diver had a pack that, Really went against the grain, rather than saying, yep. "Oh man, Dumbo, wow, that's that's a," you know, I, I I love that story. I also love what you said earlier about people need to take mistakes seriously, but not personally. I think so many, we have we have something we call mistake ritual, um, mm. you know, where you flush mistakes or you wipe them off or you brush them off, uh, and I you just you just see how kids, the the burden goes off their shoulders. They. Ah, they they take a breath when when you as a coach make it clear it's okay for them to make a mistake and then they become more aggressive. So, uh, man, this is great stuff, Dan. Well, and it's not just talk- okay. You know, there's there's a okay. there's a great you know it's not just you know it, it's so great because you can even flip it you know you can flip it further where it's not just okay it's actually outstanding. You know, that's our player yeah. of the week. That's our guy who went there that who went there more often than anybody else and was willing to do that. I mean, it's. Uh, it's 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 it is fascinating it's the power of a coach to kind of establish that tone and sustain that tone. There are little signals that go a tremendously long way. Wow, you, we were talking earlier about deep practice, and uh, you mentioned skateboarding. My son, uh, I actually wrote about this in my first book, Positive Coaching. Um, my son gave up gave up baseball between his eleven and twelve year old year, and I, was, I went into a deep depression. I saw a psychologist mm-hmm. about it, um, and he got into boards skateboarding, yeah. surfing, um, snowboarding. And yep. the you know, you start the talent code with this story about Clarissa and what I came to call the Clarissa zone of, you know, she was um really I think it was a Woody Herman song, Golden Wedding, and she she yep. heard it and she liked it and she said like six minutes of practice that was exactly what we want kids to do. Um you know, how how do you get kids into how do you get kids into, first of all, I guess, teaching them what deep practice is and then how to, mm-hmm. you know, you use the term ignition, how to motivate them. Let's start with how do you teach kids what deep practice is, and then we can talk about how you get motivate them to actually dive into it. Yeah, teaching kids what deep practice is, you know, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of elements to it, but ultimately we learn through experience and trying to design situations where your kids can go to that place and get better and then let them start connecting the dots. You probably don't do it just through words by telling them, by telling them. That'll help to kind of build a story around it and to celebrate the failure and to design spaces where people can fail at the edge of their ability. Um, You're not designing places where people can thrash and guess and hope 
um, or places where things are too easy. But you're constantly trying to design spaces where people are functioning at the edges of their ability. And, you know, an interesting way to approach that question of teaching what deep practice is is to kind of try to imagine, to ask the question really, who the fastest learner is on, in the universe. And, and for my money, the fastest learner in the universe is, is, is your kid. It's a 12-year-old kid on a skateboard. Like the rate of learning that goes on when a 12-year-old fired-up kid is on a skateboard is unbelievable. They get better so fast. I mean, if you could teach algebra the way these kids learn teach themselves to skate, um, it would be unbelievable. So what's that environment like? Well, picture a kid on a skateboard. It's an unsteady environment. He's constantly aware of where he's going to fall or not. And he doesn't have a coach telling him he's not. Doesn't, there's no third party in there. The skateboard informs you where the edge is. And you're also, if you're a skateboarder, you're surrounded by other skateboarders. You're you're in a swimming pool or a skate park, and you're constantly looking at people doing what you want to do. You know, your windshield is packed with images of your future self. So, you know, as in terms of designing an environment, to me, that is the epitome of a great environment. Picture a swimming pool with 10 skateboarders in it, and there's a little kid there watching them who's trying stuff out for himself. That kid is in a position of tremendous leverage when it comes to making the most of every minute because he's in a good environment on the edge, and he's filled his windshield with images of his future self. And that really gets to the, you know, the second part of your question, Jim, which is you know, about ignition. How do you light somebody up to want to do what Clarissa did you know, in the book? Um, and and it's incredibly, it's still sort of mysterious. You know, nobody really knows what happens when, when somebody stares and all of a sudden says, that's me. You know, it's, it's very deep in identity uh, psychology. But ultimately, as a coach, what you can do is sort of, you can't really control the lightning bolt, but you can seed the clouds. You can fill the windshield. You can create environments where kids are surrounded by people that they might want to become someday. Um, that's what ignition is. It's staring at somebody and saying, that's me. I don't just admire them. I want to be them. I want to be exactly like that person. And the irony of that in a modern American sports is that we spend a great deal of time and energy separating kids by their ages. You know, we, we spend a great deal of time sort of, okay, all the 12 year olds come off the field and all the 13 year olds come on the field. When really the most motivating, igniting thing you can do is take the nine year olds and the 13 year olds and have them have a practice together. And have the 13-year-olds teach the 9-year-olds a few things. Um, I saw that firsthand in Curacao uh, when I went to, to do some research for the talent code. They had a baseball practice with like 70 kids. And I thought it was going to be chaotic. But the kids paired off, older and younger. The older ones had the opportunity to try to explain the skill, which is hard to do, and really tested them and improved them. And the younger ones had the opportunity to watch the vision of their, their future self. And now a couple of those kids um, – I think Jonathan Shoup plays for the Orioles. There's uh, Anderson, who's the shortstop for the Braves. Uh, that guy is in there. And then one other guy who's a shortstop uh, in the big league. So it's, you know, it's not a coincidence that these guys come through that league and end up succeeding because they've, they've got the basic ingredients there. Uh, they got this windshield full of their future self. You know, um, in, um, in a little book of talent, you have one, which is a fantastic book, by the way. I, I love the talent code, uh, snarfed it up. Um, but for somebody who's like, okay, I got a problem here, the the little book of talent is great because you just go down the the uh, table of contents and say, yep, that's that's the one I want to read about. Um, and it was about picking a good coach. 
And mm. I'm just trying to read these five things you had in there uh, for our audience. Uh, yep. Avoid the courteous waiter, the person who just wants to smooth things over for you. Uh, someone who scares you a little bit. Um, yep. You know, that reminded me uh, – I know Cat Stevens has a, a new name now, and I'm, I'm spacing on what it is, but um, he had a great song with a line, I'm looking for a hard-headed woman, one who will make me do my best. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm looking for a coach who scares me a little, going to make me do my best whether I want it or not. Three, short, clear directions. And then four, loves teaching fundamentals. And then five, pick, if you have a choice, pick an older person over a younger person. Now, I looked at those and I thought, boy, um, you know, we're Positive Coaching Alliance. And mm -hmm. uh, little, like, there's a little edge to that. And then uh, in, in um, Talent Code, you talk about talent whispers. And you say they're quiet, reserved, older, listen more than they talk. Don't do pep talks, small targeted tips, extraordinary sensitivity to the student. And I loved your story about Mary Epperson, the um, piano teacher, I believe, right? Mm. Right, right. And is, is, is that yep. in, in Ohio, where you live? Actually, no, it's in Homer, Alaska, the little town. She's still she's still around okay. and still we were in there visiting her. Um, oh, so can, you, can you describe yep. for our listeners uh, what she's like when – uh, you know, a young boy, a young girl comes in for their lesson. Uh, how, how does she greet them? She's got this incredible, and it's funny. We think of these things as kind of warm and fuzzy qualities. You know, she's she's a, she's a tiny woman. She's about you know, she's a tiny woman, tiny gray-haired woman in a little trailer park, with a trailer rather, trailer studio with a uh, with a, with just room enough for a piano and a desk and a little couch. Um, and the kid comes in there and. She is an emotional athlete. She finds a point of connection with with the child, and she she sits them down. They start they start to do some work right away, and she will be very serious with them, very very treat them very much like an adult. But as they as they progress, if they do something that's right, she lights up like a Christmas tree. She makes she's so happy when they when they succeed, and and all of these qualities are um, are. are they, they sort of are these soft social qualities, but they're the same ones that I saw in these talent whisperers. This, this I, actually telling this story reminds me of, of seeing this old coach at Spartak in Moscow. It's a tennis academy that's produced more top 20 women players than the whole United States. And I was there when their oldest coach met their newest, youngest player, this scared eight-year-old who walked through the door. And this old coach um, noticed her and grabbed a ball and walked over to her and just said, I'm so glad you're here. That was it. She said, I'm so glad you're here. And then she took a ball and she said, I want you to do something for me. I want you to catch this. And she threw it and the girl caught it. And the whole interaction took 10 seconds. But that girl went from being a scared outsider to feeling a deep connection to this person. Now, there's a reason when if, we, if we're all asked to like think about the most important people in our lives, there are, there are a huge percent of them are coach. If you ask anybody on the street, who's the most important person you, you've ever encountered, a huge percentage of that will be coaches. Coaches have this incredible power to, to change people and to help people and to create environments of connection and teamwork um, that are peak moments in people's lives. So um, the, the best coaches I found were skilled in that vocabulary, especially early on with a student, especially in those first 10 seconds of meeting them and especially in finding some portal of connection. Um, you know, the kid is scared. It's a strange environment. This is weird. Um, it's, you know, their brain is telling them to, to quit or to run. 
and they're able to, to find a, a safe space and, and have a safe, fun interaction that is the seed for all the interactions that, that are to come. So it's, um, it's, a, it's a hell of a skill, and, and to see those people practice it in total anonymity. You know, to me, it was sort of like seeing Picasso painting for no money on the beach or something, you know, cause, cause what they're doing is, is extremely powerful. Um, and it's extremely kind of, um, you know, no one's paying a millions of dollars to do it. And, and yet they're affecting the, the destiny of, of some of the world's, you know, greatest athletes and musicians. You know, I, I think about, um, people who, when I walk into the room, they light up, like, I love those people. You know, I, I, I drive home, and if my wife's car is in the driveway, uh, I, I start to smile. And I feel like um, – and it seems like that's – you know, if a coach can communicate that, and, and like you said, it doesn't take very long, 10 seconds. Hey, man, I'm glad you're here. And and yeah. in my first book, Positive Coaching, we talked about just the importance of using names. That for a coach, if you, especially if you're talking about 7, 8, 9, 10-year-olds, and the coach knows your name and says, hey, Billy, I'm so glad you're there. Um there is there's um there's a cliche that has bugged me for years and I finally come around to it. I'm working on a book on team culture and I'm actually thinking about building the book around this cliche and the cliche is they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And uh, with Mary Epperson again, um the beginning is what you describe it in the book, the beginning of uh when the the kid comes in is there's conversation about their life, you know, what's going on in school, blah, blah, and that she's interested in that person as a, as a person, not just as a, a person to, to, to uh, teach piano to. And that just seems like you, you see, I've been really amazed in the last few years because you see more and more football teams talking about love. You know, we love yeah. our, our teammates and, and that uh, it seems to me that a lot of that ignition uh, to get kids to really want to be their best uh revolves around i feel cared for i i enjoy the people i'm with they 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 care about me and that all makes it it's all it's interesting to look at that through a couple of different lenses one of which is kind of the um you know that's 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 what we see in the world right that's that's the same thing any cohesive team is is basically singing that song we're a family that's what they all will say no matter what culture they're in no matter what sport or domain they're in if you go to Zappos shoes or Southwest Airlines, they'll, they'll use that same language because they have the same feelings. Um, and if we look at that through, a, through the scientific lens, maybe that's for the same reason. You know, we talk about care as this sort of soft, fuzzy, magical thing, but it's not really soft or fuzzy or magical. It's about clarity. Like these places are clearly communicating. They're tossing the tennis ball and saying, I'm glad you're here. That's not about being soft. That's about being clear. And and so if we think of it in, in a slightly cooler light, not the sort of warm and fuzzy Disney stuff, but just as a communications challenge to say, how can we clearly communicate the family essence of who we are and what we are and what we do here every day? Because... You know, we know that if you don't do it all the time, people will fall out of it. It's not something you do once and then forget about. It's something that you sort of have to keep doing. You have to keep sending that signal, ringing that bell, um, you know, however you want to describe it. But it's about clarity and repetition. It's not about sort of soft-heartedness. 
Yeah, that that's brilliant. Um, you know, I, I've heard so many coaches say, you know, gruff coaches say, my players know I care about them. And the question is like, how? <laughs> You're giving up no signals <laughs> that you care about. That clarity just seems really, really important. And, again, it doesn't have to take a long time. Um, I wanted to talk about struggle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Carol Dweck, who we mentioned uh who's uh, been a longtime member of our National Advisory Board. And, you know, the the growth mindset uh, is just a huge revelation. And she says that, um, you know, American parents want don't want their kids to struggle. And you talk about right. uh, in, in your book about uh, in Japan, struggle is a good thing. In Amer- and that's where it comes back to this, uh, the congenial waiter. In America, parents are often like they want things to just be really smooth and so they take obstacles out of the way, whereas in Japan, it's like struggle, having a barrier that you have to struggle over is a good thing, and that leads to retention. Right, right, right. You know, you'll actually have, there's a study I cite in the book where they, they looked at classrooms in Japan and classrooms in the U.S. and in Japan, teaching the same subject, same grade. In Japan, the teacher um, would sort of have these kids actively struggling about 40% of the time, and he would do it to the extent where he would make, he purposely make a mistake or put something wrong on the board so his kids would have to catch it. He was, he was like a, the designer of the skateboard park, making the ramps a little bit steeper and making it harder to, to get those guys on the edges of their abilities over and over again, whereas they did the same study with the American professor, and it was uh, 3%. You know, so 40% versus 3%. Why does Japan get better math scores? Well, that, you know, that's probably your answer right there. But it's, um, it is a question of narrative, really. What is, and that's what, where Carol's work is so po- powerful, you know, because it provides a new narrative for us to understand struggle. And it's the same narrative that we, we understand, you know, as we talked before when it comes to our muscles. But we've yet to really um, develop a vocabulary, and, and, and we're starting to, I think, develop a vocabulary and culture around um, sustaining and reinterpreting that that struggle, and it, and it comes down to, um, you know, kind of what's it seems to be happening. I think you're in an interesting spot to sort of view it happening as the as the language and the words and the culture for these sorts of things start uh, making their way into into the commons. You know, failing forward. You know, that phrase as you hear a lot more. Even even the ten thousand hours of practice, which you can argue up and down, um, but nonetheless speaks to the truth that it's not magic. You know, it takes a lot of time, no matter who you are, uh, to uh, to get really good. Uh, this validation of practice and of and of struggle, I think it's. I think things are moving in the right direction when it comes to that. Yeah, you know, I was um, Dacker Keltner is at. He is also on our national advisory board. He's at University of California, Berkeley, the Greater Good Science Center, and he he told me on one of these podcasts about a study that. Uh, that kids, when they're patted, uh, when their teacher pats the kid on the back, the kid is much more likely to be willing to go to the board and work on a, uh, a tough problem in front of the class. You know, just kind of little bits of encouragement uh, can just be uh, can just be amazing. I-, I wanted to ask you about one of the studies you highlight in your book um, about two groups. One group studied this this text four times. Uh, another mm-hmm. group studied it only once, but was tested three times on it. And that that group that only studied once, but was tested three times, um, learned 50% more than the other. Uh, yeah. That that's that's mind-boggling to me. That seems like a really uh, powerful insight. Yeah, I was been thinking about since I read it. I've been thinking about okay, so what does that mean for a youth coach? Uh, any thoughts? How can a coach incorporate that into uh, the way they coach? 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, coaching really is about is about. It's funny. We don't think of it as a skill. Other places do a little bit more. We think of it as. Um, we don't think of it as a craft as much. If you go to Germany and you want to be a soccer coach uh, at a high level, you basically do the equivalent of attending university, and, and you, you approach it from that point of view. Um, from ours, we've got to be our own learners. And I think what what this what that study you referred to really really says the real story of that is you have to find ways to get the ed- to get to the edge of your ability as a learner. Uh, and coaches are learners. Coaches should be constantly learning. If you look at any great coach. Uh, you know, John Wooden spent his off seasons traveling around visiting programs that he admired. Chip Kelly does the same thing. Bill Belichick does the same thing. Um, all these guys are, are very good at going to the edge of their ability. And as the example in the, in the experiment shows, um, it's not passive, you know, it's active. You're testing yourself over and over again. Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm doing a project with a professional team that I won't, I won't name, but we're doing something really interesting along these lines uh, in the next few weeks. We're going to be taping their coaches while they coach. We're going to be doing to their coaches what they do to their athletes. You tape the athlete and they learn from the tape. Well, why wouldn't that apply to a coach? Like how good was that coach at connecting to the room? How, how many good questions did that coach ask? How did that coach's body language? Was he tapping people? Was he not tapping people? How did the kids react? How did the players react when the coach coached? Actually look at that as a, as a skill that can be, captured, um, get feedback on, uh, and go back and do it again on tape and see how that goes. So it's going to be a really interesting experiment, but it's, it's going to, it's going to speak to that same issue that you're raising, which is, you know, if you're going to get better, you cannot lean back in your chair and read something four times and hope to improve. You actually have to get out and test yourself. And then a test, what is a test? It's measurement and feedback. You're measuring your ability, and you're getting vivid feedback on that ability. So if, if the world works that way, if, 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 I get, if that's how I get a better golf swing, if that's how I become a better violin player, why wouldn't it apply to becoming a better, smarter coach? You know, thinking about um, what you described testing as um, um, feed, um, you had two words. One was feedback. What was the first one? Uh, testing is... Well, it's it's, uh, it's sort of stretching yourself it. to the edge of the ability. Yeah, measuring it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about, um, you know, in our society, uh, we're so test-focused, and the problem with testing as a learning tool is that there are really negative consequences if you fail. And mm-hmm. uh, sports is like a fantastic place where you can create those kind of tests, and the, the consequences aren't that big. Uh, they're not yep. that terrible. Um, and so coaches can really, um, you know, setting up these kind of these kind of testing situations, and then using it as a teaching tool rather than, you know, who gets to be on the varsity and who doesn't. Because I think that when when the tests have big uh, consequences, people they they stop in some ways stop being learning experiences. Do you agree with that? I think, yeah, I absolutely do. Absolutely, do. that freezes people up. But to actually to be, you know, that really speaks to the role of coach as a designer. You know, you get to decide um, how things are going to go. If you decide, if you're a soccer coach and you say, you know what, you know, the scoreboard is there with the numbers real big. Everybody knows how many goals we score. But today we're going to keep scoring how many high-quality passes we make, and that's going to be what matters. Well, all of a sudden, everybody's going to be, if you really set that up right and deliver the message right and create the culture around it and score it in a way that's transparent and and shared, um, you can really – you know, change the way your team plays because now you're sort of testing them, measuring them on, on this different thing. And, you know, at some level you are what you measure and you can, you can 
tweak that environment and, and, and tip that environment toward, um, toward the kind of skills you want to build instead of just the result. Yeah, I love that coach a designer. I was thinking about um, reading years ago when Pat Riley was coaching. Uh, we have a concept of effort goals or outcome goals, but um, effort goals are more under your control. And if they're tied to outcome, eventually you get better at it. And um, he was frustrated with his players trying to steal the ball uh, in getting fouls. And uh, the way, typically, the way you you steal balls is on the pass. And so he. Um, rather than taking away from him on the dribble. And he uh, started tracking how many tips, tip balls, tip passes. So uh, if you got your fingers on a pass playing defense, you got a point. Whether or not it deflected enough uh, to to steal the ball or anything. but And, and all of a sudden the, the, the behavior of the team just shifted towards really trying to deflect balls rather than trying to, to, to make the steal. Seems like a that oh, coach cool. a designer is a is a beautiful beautiful phrase. Well, if you look at the at how those coaches live their lives, you know how much time did John Wooden spend before each practice uh, writing out the program? Um, you know the idea, and it takes us back, I guess, to the beginning of the conversation of strolling up to a baseball field without any premeditation, without any thought, and just looking out at a bunch of kids and trying to figure out what to do. That's a hell of a hard thing to do, you know. And actually, it helps everybody, especially you, you know, the coach, to, to spend some time and figuring out we're going to do A, B, C, D, do some, you know, do some of the research on, the, on, on sites like yours and places like yours and figure out how to build and design a, a real learning community. You know, I got, um, this has been fantastic. I got a couple more questions for you. Um, I, I, I'm not sure the, the phrase I use for what you describe in your book is I would call it constricted practice, where you you talk about futsal and how mm-hmm. uh, there's many more touches, the ball's heavier, uh, confined space, and it made me think of one of my favorite books is a book by Edward Hirsch. It's called How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry, and he talks mm-hmm. about Elizabeth Bishop's poem One Art. Uh, which is pretty famous. It starts like, um, the art of losing isn't hard to master. Um, and he describes this this poem. It's a, a villanelle, which is a French form, form of poetry. has to be 19 lines, very complex rhyming requirements. The first and third verses have to rhyme. The middle verse in each, or middle line in each verse has to rhyme with itself. Um, so the, the poet, Elizabeth Bishop, um, assigned herself these restrictions. And the result is a poem that is mind, it's breathtaking, it's so beautiful. Uh, and you might say, well, if you didn't have to have all those restrictions, maybe she could have written something even better. But but his point is that those restrictions, self-imposed restrictions, cause you actually to, to you know, maybe maybe it's like you're creating more myelin. You're, you're, uh... Anyway, I just any thought about the idea of constricted practice. I think it's brilliant. I think I think a lot of the science would line up right behind it. I mean, the world is a really big and complicated place, and whether you know anything you can do to kind of compress and isolate the kinds of things that you want to work on to channel your your thoughts and your energies in certain directions. I was just looking. This is video of Novak Djokovic practicing tennis, and he's doing this little game just in the service box with his with a, you know his training partner, and you've got a it's sort of like it's sort of a ping pong like game and it's tiny. It doesn't resemble tennis at all, except you're working on all this like face control and spin and footwork. 
Um, it's this crazy little compressed game that is, when you watch it, it's, it's kind of the same feeling you get reading that poem. You know, this is so beautiful and amazing, and it's creating these, this kind of stretching and intensity and focus that you'd never get in a big game. You know, you'd never get it. You know, our brains are really big and complicated, and they tend to ramble all over the place if you give them space to roam. You know, if you give, if you give somebody a, a, a football field and a, and a soccer ball, not much is going to happen. You know, you'll kick it, you'll run after it, you'll kick it. But if you give somebody a little tiny room in a soccer ball, a lot will happen. A lot will happen. So, you know, those walls are your friends, you know, and that, that's limiting that space. It doesn't limit your choices. It just channels them and, and, and it clarifies things. And it makes you um, work, I think, with more intensity than you can achieve in a big open space. You know, Dan, I said I had two more questions. That was one. I actually have two more. Um, I was really struck uh, when you're talking about Florence. I never thought of Florence, Italy, as this sleepy little town. Um, you know, and, and it, 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 it wasn't quite as sleepy as, as the, the mythology was, but that you identified the key to all the brilliant uh, work of art, works of art that came out of that, that small community, and tied it to the craft guilds. Um, could you, could you uh, again, share with our, with our listeners what a craft guild is I mean, it's, uh, and, and why that cre- allowed people to become so good at what they were doing? It's sort of, you know, it's a, it's a great term that, uh, you know, called enabling systems. You know, they're kind of the systems right underneath the surface of everything that sort of make things possible. And, and that's where the craft guild was in, was in Florence. You know, there were a lot of artists all over Europe. But but in order to kind of protect their their domains, um, each of the crafts, whether it was, you know, co- uh, fabric making or painting or sculpting, you know, they formed these little unions where they controlled prices and controlled everything and also created systems of apprenticeships. They created these rules, these little clubs, basically, where they said, okay, if we're going to be organized together, we've got to have some rules. And, and the apprentices were these young boys and occasional, I think all boys, actually, and who came aboard and uh, learned every step of the craft and learned it by imitating, learned it by doing, you know, they didn't go to school to learn how to, how to mix paint and how to carve marble. They went out and, and did it. And they learned how to take the eggs out of the coop and mix them up with, uh, you know, to make the fresco covering. And they learned how to do each of these steps. And this system of sort of copying an intense, comp- intense competition between the guilds for, for different projects created, um, this this you know brotherhood of young apprentices that grew up to be the names that we all recognize you know the Michelangelos and the Donatellos and the and the rest so um, it makes you think when you think about that and then you you also kind of translate that to okay who has you know asked the question who has succeeded in Hollywood over the years well often it's it's people who had that same kind of exposure at a young age like a Ron Howard who went on to become a great director or like a George Lucas someone who who was steeped in it, who was basically apprenticing. And this idea that we should sort of go to school and learn theory and and take tests in order to get good at these kind of skills um, has proven over the long run to be a lot less effective than somebody hanging around the workplace. Hang around the workplace, do the work, learn the work, learn the craft of it, hands-on, not not through a screen or not not in, in any kind of theory. It's the same thing you have with good people who are great at computer coding. You know, they're they're out there at hackathons. They're learning how to do it. Um, they're creating environments like like Florence, where where they can actually have a ton of reps under pressure, 
with real stuff for real odds. You know, it, it makes makes me think of um, Harper Lee. You know, she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, which is mm-hmm. might be my most favorite novel ever. I think a lot of people would say that. And there's always this question, like, why didn't she ever write another? Well, mm-hmm. she did now, but um, um, I, I don't I don't know that it's gotten. Uh, you can compare the two, the new book uh, to catch uh, uh, Catch a Watchman or whatever the name it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's a biography of her called Mockingbird that talks about the environment she was in when she wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. And she was working in a literary agency in New York City. She had lots of friends. She had a a really great editor. She was getting lots of feedback on the manuscript. And if we, we, uh, which I tend to, if we think of Ghosts at a Watchman as an earlier draft of To Kill a Mockingbird, we see how that turned into a fantastic... um, you know, with all that support, uh, you know, the term you used was uh, enabling system. She had an enabling support system that helped mm-hmm. her reach her skill. It seems like a tra- craft guild uh, similar, and it also seems like the greatest teams where people are supporting each other. Um, so I was really, so really true. pleased with the, the whole thing about craft guilds and your your point that guild the uh, I don't know if that's Italian or what, but French or but it's right. guild stands for gold, which you get it in a good team. It is like uh, being being golden. That's beautiful. That's true, and, and it's so funny because the story we're fed about talent, you know, from from you know movies and Nike and everything else, is that it's kind of this magical thing you get alone. But as you so beautifully described, it's something that's built in community. You know, it's something we build together. And and whenever you have a talented person, you can draw this broader circle of support around them and which means that you know i think for you know for your listeners it's sort of about the question of how you know figuring out how that works and how to connect to people and how to learn how to, how to share and how to you know create these communities but you know because talent is not you know it's not something you you sort of get alone something you build together yeah. Okay. Uh, this is my last question. Um, you, in, uh, I, I'm really struck by your, your term ignition. Uh, you know, it's motivation. How do people get really turned on? And uh, you had a phrase there that, um, um, you know, like, well, oh, I, I know it was about the uh, uh, South Korean uh, golfers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the first one makes a big, and then other people saying, well, if she can do it, why can't I? And I was reminded of reading about uh, when Jimmy Carter decided to run for president. He was a governor of um, Georgia. And as a governor, he would host all these candidates, Democratic candidates running for president. And uh, the story is one day at dinner, uh, after hosting a candidate, he turned to Roslyn and he said, you know, if that guy can run for president, why can't I? Um, <laughs> And the phrase you use in in the book is "That's who I want to be," and we have we, we've we've built our program, Positive Coach Alliance, around uh, what Peter Senge at MIT calls mental models. That um, you know the double goal coach, the you know the the better athletes, better people. I want to. Uh, yeah, I want to win on the scoreboard, but I also want to teach life lessons. And the triple impact competitor who makes himself better, her teammates better, and the game better. And what we're really trying to do is ignite uh, people to say, athletes to say, um, I, not, I, I know what a triple impact competitor is, and that's one, and I want to be that. And coaches to say, yep. uh, I want to be, that's what I want to be, a double coach. And just curious, any any uh, advice you might have for how we can help um 
help those those models, the double goal coach, the triple impact competitor, uh, ignite around the country. Yeah, there are these moments that I think are really interesting. You know, they're sort of doorways into having that conversation. I'm, I'm thinking of the, oh, was it the softball player who hit the home run and hurt her knee and then her, you know, got carried around the bases by the rival team. Um, Mallory Holtzman, yeah. she is on our national advisory board, and we call that the Mallory moment. I mean, you know, in that, I think, you know, seeking those moments and, and, and highlighting them and using that as a lens to look at them. You know, we we sort of learn through people, you know, and through stories and yep. through narratives. And I think the more you can uncover and, and, and fortunately, you know, we're living in this age where it's more possible than ever. If something cool like that happens on the field, it will be filmed. You know, you will have access to it to share it and to celebrate it. And so finding these moments and finding a way to, um, you know, to really sell the humanity of it uh, over the model. And the model is baked into it and the model is part of it, but, um, you know, really putting that it's story in the story first. first. Yeah. It's the story in the yeah. person first. And, and, and that's, you know, that's the way we learn. And that's what we, that's what fills that. That's what you want to put in the windshield and then let people dig deeper and find out more and connect those dots. Wow. Fantastic advice. Dan, this is, uh, we could go on. I, I know I could for hours and hours. This has been fantastic. And I really appreciate, uh, the work you've done is invaluable and I really appreciate your support of the positive coaching Alliance movement. Thank you. It's an honor. And it's really been fun talking to you too, Jim. And I know it will not be the last time. Thanks for joining us on this episode of PCA one-on-one. Be sure to visit positivecoach.org to download more podcasts.